morning. It's good to be together on this morning when it has been raining and sleeting and goodness knows what. But we are here to worship God. And so we begin by hearing some words from Psalm 19. The heavens are telling the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor there are words. Their voice is not heard, and yet their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And now let's come to God in prayer. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, may your holy name be praised. May your will be done as your heavenly kingdom spreads throughout the earth. Please help us to remember that you are God, beyond our understanding or imagining, and that all the names by which we know you, however imperfect, carry within them something sacred. Please help us to approach you, not to seek special blessings or personal favours, but in humility and faith to rededicate ourselves to the work of your kingdom. Grant to us this day and each new day sufficient to meet our needs. We thank you that we each have somewhere dry to live, warm clothes to wear, and enough food to eat. We thank you for the infrastructure of our nation that, whilst it is far from perfect, seeks to provide a safe enough place for all to live good enough lives. Forgive us our sins and help us to forgive the sins of others. We all mess up, all fall short short of our own expectations, let alone yours. Please forgive us and help us to change. We each experience the effects of failings by others. Help us to be forgiving and gracious as a means of change. Don't let us be tested beyond what we can bear and help us avoid the lure of evil. Life can be hard. Fatigue, infirmity, work or unemployment can all wear us down. Give us friends who will support and encourage us in tough times. The lure of quick fixes and dodgy dealings can be very strong. Give us resilience and courage to live with integrity. All power, all glory, all authority and all creation belong to you now and always. In this confident trust, we offer our prayers in Christ's name. Amen. First reading this morning is Nehemiah. Chapter 8, 
verses 1 to 10, omitting number 4 and 7. By the seventh month, the people of Israel were all settled in their towns. On the first day of that month, they all assembled in Jerusalem, in the square just inside the water gate. They asked Ezra, the priest and scholar of the law within the Lord, had given Israel through Moses to get the book of the law. So Ezra brought it to the place where the people had gathered, men, women, and the children, who were old enough to understand. There in the square by the gate, he read the law to them from dawn until noon, and they all listened attentively. As Ezra stood on the platform high above the people, they all kept their eyes fixed on him. As soon as he opened the book, they all stood up. Ezra said, Praise the Lord, the great God. All the people raised their arms in the air and answered, Amen, Amen. They knelt in worship with their faces to the ground. When the people heard what the law required, they were so moved that they began to cry. So Nehemiah, who was a governor, Ezra the priest and the scholar of the law, and the Levites who were explaining the law, told all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God, so you are not to mourn or cry. Now go home and have a feast. Share your food and wine with those who haven't enough. Today is holy to our Lord, so don't be sad. The joy that the Lord gives you will raise you strong, will make you strong. And the, the second reading is First Corinthians chapter twelve, verses eight, fourteen to eighteen. That's on page 216. For the body itself is not made up of only one part, but of many parts. If the foot were to say, because, because I am not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not keep it from being a part of the body. And if the ear were to say, because I am not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not keep it from being a part of the body. If the whole body were just an eye, how could it hear? And if it were only an ear, how could it smell? As it is, however, God put every different part of the body just as he wanted it to be. The final reading this morning is Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 21. That's on page 79. Jesus begins his work in Galilee. Then Jesus returned to Galilee, and the power of the Holy Spirit was with him. The news about him spread throughout all that territory. He taught in the synagogues and was praised by everyone. When Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath he went as usual to the synagogue, he stood up to read the scriptures and was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has chosen me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed. Here endeth the three lessons. I wonder how long the longest church service you ever attended lasted. 
in Britain, anything that lasts much over 90 minutes is seen as long. But if you went to some parts of Africa or even the Far East, you would find services that last for three or four hours. But within that service, however long it was, how long was given over to the reading of scripture rather than singing or preaching or anything else? I ask this because you probably feel that you've listened to quite a lot of Bible this morning. And indeed, by contemporary British Baptist standards, we probably have. But compared to the people in that first reading we heard, we've hardly heard anything at all. The Jewish book of Ezra Nehemiah refers to a time around the end of the exile in Babylon when something like 50,000 people, roughly equivalent to a population of Ayr or a town of that size, returned to their homeland in a series of groups. It's a book that covers the reigns of several kings in a period of roughly 100 years and is broadly contemporaneous with the books of Haggai, Zechariah and Malachi as well as the story of Esther. Unlike a lot of Old Testament prophets who seem to appear out of nowhere, we are told a bit about Nehemiah's background. He was a cupbearer in the court of King Artaxerxes and he sought permission from the king to go and to repair or to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He was a man with clear leadership skills, practical and good at organising, and he was promoted to the status of governor by the king and commissioned to undertake the task. And a very detailed account is given of that task, which was completed remarkably, though not improbably quickly. There are other accounts in history of that time of people doing similar things in the same amount of time. Once the walls were completed and Jerusalem was ready to resume its place at the heart of their life, Nehemiah calls all the people together. And so they gathered the women and the men and any children who they felt could understand. And I think that is interesting in and of itself. How do you decide who can or can't understand? When do we think children are old enough to start understanding the things of God? There's some really interesting questions there, which we're not going to think about just now, but important questions nonetheless. You see, childhood, as we understand it, is a very recent development going back really to late Victorian times. So it seems quite plausible to me that children as young as six or seven would have been in this congregation who were listening to the scrolls being read. From early in the morning until midday, the people stood listening attentively as Ezra read them to them from the law of Moses. Now, we've got no way of knowing where he began, whether it was at the beginning of the scroll or whether he had to search through to find where he was going to start. We've no way of knowing exactly how long it was, but I wonder how far he would have got in six hours, which seems like a reasonable estimate of dawn till midday. And how could anybody keep listening for that long and not get distracted or bored 
or fall asleep or their mind wander or whatever. I did a little bit of research online this week, and apparently in an English translation of Genesis, there are around about 38,000 words. At an average reading speed of 120 words a minute, which is a little bit faster than I preach, it would take about five hours continuous reading to get through Genesis. So if they'd been reading in English, which they obviously weren't because it didn't exist then, at the end of their morning's listening, they'd have been around about a fifth of the way through the scrolls of Moses. We don't know how far they got through. But one thing is for certain, they listened to one heck of a lot of scripture that morning. But it didn't stop there. Because after a brief interlude, when they seemed to have done a little bit of praying and prostrating themselves, Ezra, Nehemiah, and the Levites went out amongst the people to explain to them what it was they'd been listening to. That sounds, excuse me, got ice in my mouth. It's lovely. Thank you, Alan. It sounds like the biggest Bible study ever. They've been listening for five or six hours. They've had a bit of prayer time, and now they're out. There's about 15 or so named people who are out among the people, helping them to understand what it means. Now, after all this listening and explaining, I think those children and adults would have been very tired Their legs would have been aching, their stomachs would have been rumbling, and their minds would have been overloaded. Not surprising that they were also very emotional. This challenge of trying to live according to the law that they had heard was just so much, and they they began to cry. They were really distressed. So perhaps what comes next is a bit of a surprise but it seems to me to be very significant. The people are not immediately called to confession and penitence. Rather, Nehemiah, Ezra, and the Levites are of one mind. This is not a day for weeping. It's a day for rejoicing. Go home and have a slap-up meal, because this is a holy day, a day that you should be enjoying and celebrating. And that's what they did. I found that quite challenging because it made me think, well, I wonder what kind of state I leave you in on a Sunday morning. And have I ever encouraged you to go home and celebrate? I don't think I have. So today, you can go home and have a nice dinner, okay? And the story continues a little bit further on and says, the people went home They celebrated by eating and drinking and by sharing their food with those in need because they understood what had been read to them. The people had come together to listen to scripture read to them for half a day. They'd spent a substantial amount of time listening to their leaders explain it to them. And now they have to demonstrate, or they do demonstrate, that they have understood because their celebrations become amazing examples of hospitality and generosity. They invite those who have less 
to come and have dinner with them. They don't just go home to their own houses and have a nice dinner in private. In their shared life, they're on the brink of something really special, and so they act together. The hearing of Scripture has not just been an intellectual exercise. The worship they've participated in has been no mere spiritual fillip. What they've heard has affected them deeply, and they are changed as a result. Well, at least for a while anyway. Now, you'll be very relieved to know that I'm not going to suggest that for the rest of this year, every Sunday morning we will just sit and listen to somebody read their way through a book of the Bible and then spend the afternoon discussing it in Bible classes. I do think that there is something in this story about how extended communal listening and reflecting finds its expression in action. How often, if we're honest, once the service has ended, go and chat to our friends, the people we know and get on with the best, and then go back to our own nice private worlds, completely unaware of what's going on for anybody else, and maybe largely unaffected by what we've been exploring. If we were sent out from here today with this instruction to go and have a slap-up feast, what would it mean? Would we invite somebody else to come and share our plenty? Or would somebody invite us, who might be on our own or with less food, to go and share theirs? You see, it wasn't just a case of have a nice time, folks. It was start to live out what you've been thinking about. This communal or corporate emphasis continues as we turn our attention to those few verses we heard from the letter to the church at Corinth. Now the evidence is that that was a church in a state of turmoil. We read answers to questions that they seem to have asked, responses to arguments they're having, and some fairly stern upbraiding for bad behaviour. Either side of the short portion we heard read are perhaps more familiar passages. The first, in chapter 11, about appropriate behaviour at the sharing of the Lord's Supper, which has degenerated into total array as the rich people have a slap-up feed first while they're waiting for the less well-off people to arrive, so that by the time the servants are free to share and celebrate in the Lord's Supper, there's nothing left. And that's clearly not acceptable. And then on the other side, we have in chapter 13, the great hymn to love, which comes after a discussion about spiritual gifts and how those are viewed within the community. It wasn't just the case that a few individuals were failing and needed to be disciplined or corrected. It was a reflection on the whole church at Corinth. Together, they were messing up and together they needed to act. Here we have this powerful image of the church as a body and no other body than that of Christ. We're reminded that everyone matters and that diversity is not just desirable, it's essential for the church to fulfill its calling. None of us can define ourselves apart from that body. There is no such thing as a solo Christian who exists beyond the church. We need each other. And no one of us has all the gifts and skills that are needed for the work of the church. No matter how many courses we've been on, how many qualifications we've 
obtained or how many hours we've spent reading the Bible or in prayer. None of us can do it on our own. But none of us is unimportant or redundant. Everybody has a part to play, no matter how small, how menial, or how unobserved. I wonder how much thought we give give to the things that go on unseen in the church that allow us to share our lives together. It seems, as we read on in this passage, that the Corinth church had plenty of very ambitious members, all vying to be noticed, to have their moment in the spotlight, sharing a special message from God, speaking in a strange language, interpreting a strange language, and so on. It seems that they all wanted visible, spectacular, charismatic gifts. But at the same time, their behavior showed a lack of understanding of compassion for those who are materially or socially less privileged than themselves. They can have a nice time speaking in tongues and and being thought to be very holy, and never mind the poor servant who just prepared the meal, who had to come in late to worship because they were cleaning up. I have a feeling that many churches nowadays, it's actually very different, but no less important People are reluctant to put themselves forward, even when they have exactly the gifts and skills that are needed. And so things don't get done. I think sometimes this is a fear of failure or of being compared to Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. Such-a-Body who used to do it so well. Sometimes it is because people are genuinely busy and their priorities have to lie elsewhere. But sometimes, I suspect, it's actually the case that we've gone a bit consumerist, seeing church as about what we get out of it for ourselves, rather than a unity of which we are a part and to which we each should contribute in whatever way we can. The body can only function if all its members play their proper part. We all know that. And whenever I think about this passage or the parallel one in the letter to the church at Rome, I'm really challenged to think afresh about how much of a one body the church where I serve is. And that's been over a number of years. I'm not particularly meaning here, I'm meaning any church. The story we heard from Nehemiah gives us a great start of what it means to be one body. People who gather together earnestly seeking to understand what God requires of them. And the Corinthian story lends us a note of caution that this is no passive assembly and no mere collection of individuals seeking their own gratification, but a community bound together as one in which everyone has a part to play. It's this unity of purpose, this unity of spirit that is important to the church being one body, the body of Christ in this place. So we have a corporate model, a community that embodies and celebrates diversity, affirming each member for their unique contribution to the whole and committed to listening together for God's direction. And it's with that in mind that we then move on very briefly to think about Luke's account of Jesus preaching in the Nazareth synagogue. Every time 
we come together as a community to listen as scripture is read for us. We're challenged to do what Nehemiah's enormous congregation did, to listen carefully as we try to work out what God is saying to us. And we don't do this passively, but actively, as people willing to do the hard work of studying scripture. Not as an academic exercise, not to say, well, that's interesting textually or historical critically or whatever it is. And not as people who want to prove once and for all that it was like this or it wasn't like that. Who wrote it and when and why. But actually people who are listening together to allow it to speak to our community as we try to fulfill God's call on our life together. We're listening for God through those words. We're not here to critique them or analyse them. What is it that Jesus says to us? What is it that God says through the prophet Isaiah that we need to hear? The Spirit's Lord has come to me because he has chosen me to tell the good news to the poor. The Lord has sent me to announce freedom for prisoners, to give sight to the blind, to free everyone who suffers and to say, this is the year the Lord has chosen. To us, as a community listening for God's voice, this is an enormous challenge, a faith rooted and expressed in clear and explicit social action to free everyone who suffers, to give sight to those who can't see, to announce freedom to those who are held captive, to give poor people good news for once. As we hear those words, we probably and rightly feel we need to wrestle with them, to tease out what they mean and what that looks like in our context and if that's the case then our call is to do that together with one eye looking inwards around us in the church because are there poor people in our church are there captive people in our church are there blind or um, partially sighted people in our church people who that is the call to care for or is it to look outside This community that we are in should be like that because this is the vision, God says. One day my will will be fulfilled and I want that to be the case, that those who suffer will be freed, those who are captive will be released, those who are poor will hear good news. We hear it said to us. We also hear it said of us. If we are Christ's body, then we can put our name into that prophecy and hear it not as some abstract thing, but as a call to us. The Lord's Spirit has come to Hillhead Baptist Church because he has chosen us to tell good news to the poor. The Lord has sent us to announce freedom for prisoners, to give sight to the blind, to free everyone who suffers and to say... This is the year the Lord has chosen. If we take that seriously, as well as our concern for one another, then also we have a concern for those around us. 
Nehemiah's congregation had choices, individually and as a body of God's people. They could listen or not. They could reflect or not. They could be challenged and changed or not. They could act or not. And actually the same is true for us. If we believe that God speaks to us through scripture, and if we believe that it is via communal listening and discerning that we identify the voice of God, and if we believe that God has chosen us to speak and to be good news, then what does that look like manifest in our life together and our service of those around us? Let's pray. Triune God, who in love created us and all people, and who calls us into your divine purpose, help us to listen and to reflect upon what we have heard. Help us to look and to see how what we have heard speaks to our lives. Help us to grow in loving interdependence so that, as one body, we may continue the work of him who saves us, Christ our Lord. Amen. On this Homelessness Sunday, our prayers this morning will direct to those who so often fall below the radar in our society. Loving Lord, we bring you our thanks for all we have in our comfortable lives, for our homes and our sense of security. We get so used to lives where, for most of us, even our greatest problems pale into insignificance when we read or hear of the challenges faced by others. We would pray that we are given insights into a world where each day brings new difficulties on top of those already being faced. Look with mercy on homes where love is threatened by poverty. We ask that you will strengthen and support parents who struggle to provide adequately for their children. For parents for whom their own problems mean they are unable to provide the stable background so essential to children as they grow up. We pray for single mothers who struggle with the problems of paying for childcare for young children and struggle with the problems of discipline for older siblings. Give understanding and empathy to those who try to help as officials, as volunteers, or just as involved neighbours. We pray too for relationships under strain from loss of income arising out of redundancy or reduced working hours, for those in debt drawn into unwise borrowing from money lenders themselves driven by greed. We ask that some how the idea of love for others will undermine a culture where one's personal success is not met by another's loss. We thank you for the army of volunteers who add enormously to officially provided assistance. Bless them and give them courage to work in difficult situations, 
patience when working with difficult people, and a deep sense of satisfaction when they see the results of their efforts. On this Homelessness Sunday, we pray for those for whom circumstances have conspired to deprive them of the comforts of being in a home of their own. Often, they have fallen victim to drugs or alcohol abuse, either because of a collapse in relationships in their own home life or that collapse itself stemming from their addiction. Give strength to the addict to overcome addiction and courage to create a new future. We especially pray for those individuals and organisations involved in meeting the challenges of providing the means of breaking free from homelessness, like starter packs providing basics to get people going in a new home, like Emmaus trying to provide both a home and work, or like Scottish Houses Scottish Church's housing action that helps churches and others make practical responses to the challenge of homelessness in Scotland. Finally, we pray for ourselves that we will turn our gratitude for what we have into support and action for others. Not on the other side of the world, but right here in Glasgow. Loving Lord, hear these our prayers in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It seems appropriate as our blessing today that those who are on the edges upstairs and at the back come and join us in the body of the church. And I invite you, if you would like to, to join hands with those along your row as a sign of unity. If you feel uncomfortable with that, that's also fine. And we will look around as we say the words of the grace to each other, but we will end with our traditional sung amen, because it wouldn't be Hillhead otherwise, would it? Are you going to come down and join us, Paul? And has Patricia joined the main body? Yes, she has. That's great. We are, after all, one body in Christ. So we say to one another, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Evermore.